please turn with me to John chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 4b through 15 this morning. This is Jesus speaking. That when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for today, for another opportunity to gather as a body under your word. Uh, we just ask that you be with Stacy as he shares this morning and with us as we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So what if I said it is uh, to your advantage, like this whole thing is better for you, um, the whole situation, uh, since Jesus is not here bodily right now? That's better. As a matter of fact, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I wish I had lived when Jesus walked the earth and I walked with him. Uh, but what if, what if I said, uh, frankly, because he says, no, it's actually to your advantage. This whole situation is better for you that, that I go. Oh, well, it could be misunderstood, but given what Jesus says here, it could be misunderstood in a way that you just wouldn't expect. I'm leaving, he says. Oh, and that's better. I got to thinking about that. That's not the way that I would have added it up, you know, at first glance, and I know I'm not alone. Uh, that we're in this part in the Gospel of John where it's called the farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye and that Jesus is going away has been part of this whole conversation um, and it even, you can tell as you read through it, it sets the emotional tone for it, if you will. So it's the farewell discourse or sometimes scholars will call it something similar to that. The reason they say that is because not just that he's leaving and not just that, you know, it's part of saying his goodbyes, he is preparing them for what that means. Right? You guys have to get ready. And his going away, whenever he says he's going away, what he means is he's going to the cross and the grave and resurrection and ascension. All those things that the disciples can't get their minds around right now. As a matter of fact, they won't get their minds around it until later. And only then with the help 
capital H, that Jesus sends them. Now, all of this comes once Judas leaves them. They're in the Last Supper together. Uh, Judas uh, departs from the rest, and he goes into darkness. And once that happens towards the end of chapter 13, the time has come. Jesus remarks on this. So now the Son of Man is glorified. It's on now. And Jesus goes into these final preparations for his disciples. There's this long conversation between them, and it's just them. And you could see this from roughly chapters 14 through 16, if you want to include chapter 17, his high priestly prayer, you could do that. But it's all about readying them for his departure. Let's ask that question again. How could they lose Jesus? And to double down on that, how could they lose Jesus and it be better for them? It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's just not something that you would expect. There's, there's a lot of that with Jesus, a lot of, hey, I, I just didn't expect that. You know, you can see it in the conversations that he has, the sides he picks and so on. We have this long history of assuming that we know what God will do when he acts, you know, because God is smart, like us. God is not smart like us. He's like actually smart. So this isn't what anybody would expect when Jesus says this. How could they lose Jesus and things get better? And as we frame that, we ought to do that from an eternal perspective. And maybe that's the part that throws them off because the disciples can't quite get that far. They're not thinking like that because, yeah, because of all the, the news that's going on. This is, we're right before his death. They know it. They're, it's it's pressure-packed. It's not because Jesus is somehow flawed that things will get better. It's actually because Jesus is going to expand his ministry in a way that none of his disciples, none of us either would have anticipated. We would just would have never conceived of it. Jesus is not smart like us. He's better. So Jesus was about to go. This is right before he's going to die. He's about to go. That's what permeates. And where he's going, they cannot follow. He's already told them that. And so, how do we understand this? A couple of key words here. At the, at the very beginning of the passage, probably the key word, the best key word is sadness. Um, they are filled with sorrow. So at the end of verse 4 all the way through verse 6. But to get the context, we should... Uh, back up to the passage that Brad preached last week. In the passage just before this, Jesus tells them, the world will hate you. You know, hey, good news, the world will hate you, right? And sometimes uh, Christians misapply this. You know, uh, they are combative and disdainful and other unnecessary, non-charmful things. And so when the world hates them, these people suppose it's because they're suffering for Jesus. When in fact, they're unliked um, simply because they're unlikable, you know. You can avoid that uh, by becoming a better person, okay? But there is something that you can't avoid in the passage, and that's the thing that Jesus is actually talking about. And it goes something like this. In the passage before, it, it's essentially the rationale is this. My disciples reflect who I am, and the world hates me. And since the world hates me, when you reflect who I am, you're going to get it. That's going to come your direction. It's very important because whenever he starts this, he says, uh, all of this is kind of news. The world will hate you. 
kind of news. Um, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. Now, why not? Why didn't he say it uh, before to tell them to expect it? Well, he finishes verse 4 by saying, because I was with you. And you might just go, it's the natural question, what difference does that make? Why would that be such a big deal? Well, as long as Jesus was with them, he was going to be the lightning rod. You might call him the lightning rod par excellence, the lightning rod of lightning rods, right? And so that as long as he was around doing Jesus things and interacting with the religious elites and all the conflict there, all the attention was going to be on him and the disciples were hardly going to be noticed. Now, you may not think that's possible, but think about it. Have you ever been in a context where somebody is such a, like a powerful figure, and you might be standing right next to them, and people could see you, but they don't really see you? There's nothing there to notice in a way, right? So, I'm a preacher guy, and I operate in preacher guy worlds. And so, some of you like uh, preachers outside of this church, shame on you, but uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, but some of you like preachers outside of this church, and there are guys who in the preacher guy world are somewhat famous. And so you might go, um, you know, maybe yours is somebody like John MacArthur, or John Piper, or Tim Keller, or Joel Osteen, you should do better, uh, something like that. But anyway, if I, if I were standing next to one of these guys, now I'm well known here, small local church tucked away in Billings, Montana. But in the preacher guy world, if I was standing next to somebody like that, I might be there in proximity, but nobody's going to notice me because I'm not the, my mom, but I'm not the face and the name. It would be the other person everybody knows, right? And as the disciples walk around with Jesus, he's the only one, Jesus is the only one that they're going to they're gonna notice. But now remember what he said, I'm leaving. And so what's going to happen? That That's why I'm telling you now. Because as I go, that's going to shift. All right? Um, I'm not going to be around much longer, and the world will turn. Uh, that attention that I've been getting, they're going to turn it to you. Now, Jesus has been talking about his departure all throughout this long discourse. And it shows up again. Look at verse 5. I am going to him who sent me. He's talked about this before, that he's sent from the Father. Those are his credentials, right? He really is of God, and that he's returning. I'm going to him who sent me. Now, there's something difficult to see and something that you can't help but see here. Okay, there's a difficult thing, like, now what's up with that? And then there's an obvious thing. What's the thing that's difficult uh, to see? Look at verse 5. He says, but now none of you ask me where are you going? Okay, and let me say it again. But now, none of you ask me, where are you going? But that looks like a contradiction because they have asked where he's going. Want to, you could see Peter in chapter 13, verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Sounds like the exact same question. Thomas, chapter 14, verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So what do you do with that? It's only an apparent contradiction, not a real one. The key word is now. Now, look at this. But now, I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? The key word is now. They had asked before, but they stopped asking. They weren't pressing in about that, about where he's going, and that's not good. 
Now, why? They need to learn a lot more about his going away because his going away is the cross. It's his burial. It's his resurrection. It's his ascension. And that's why he came in the first place. That is the thing that they need to understand. And where Jesus is going is part of what makes all the difference. Remember, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to return to my glory. So to stop asking is to stop short of seeing his mission for what it really is. That's the thing that's difficult to see, but you can see that, okay, they started, but they stopped, and they needed to press through and see that because that's the rationale for the whole thing. So it's hard to see, but you can see it. But here's the thing that you can't help but see. Right? Especially when you understand the context. Verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart. This is probably why they're not thinking too far ahead. Um, when you get really, really tough news, and then somebody asks you about your five-year plan, it's hard to get there. Right? Um, hey, the, your, your loved one is leaving. Oh, by the way, uh, what are your projections for the next quarter? You know, it's just not there, right? It's a blow of great sadness. These, I, I think it's almost impossible for us from the modern perspective to understand the disciples' relationship with Jesus. We don't, like maybe the closest thing is like a real tight-knit family. You know, they, they traveled with him. It's a 24-7 relationship for three years where they know the ins and outs. You, you almost have no relationship like that. Neither do I. It um, doesn't seem uh, out of place, does it, when somebody you care deeply about, maybe it's the most important person in your life, a loved one, and they say, hey, I'm about to leave, and you miss them before they're already gone. You, you know that sadness is just the news, the reality that we're going to be separated. So Jesus is leaving, and the disciples' grief is overwhelming them to the point that they can't make their minds work. It's not just here. You could see it if you pop down to verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you. Like, listen, I, there's a lot I could tell you that, uh, that you need to know and I need to inform you of, but why not, why not let them have it? It's like you couldn't bear it right now. It's too much. Um, so, so what do you say to that? There's sadness and he's going away and... and uh, uh, they're not pressing in. What do you say to that? Well, it turns out something surprising, and that's the second key word in the passage is advantage. Verse 7, Jesus asserts that it's actually better for them that he's going away because it's only after he goes away that Jesus is going to send the Helper, capital H, the Holy Spirit. So it's Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit comes. Look at verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. It's better for you that I am going. Not the least of which, if you want to look back and go, that going is going to the cross. If there is no cross, where are you with your sin and your relationship with God? There is no substantive basis to deal with the problem that, you have, that God has with you. But he goes on to say, but if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I'll send him to you. Jesus leaves, Spirit comes, and that's better. And all throughout this section, Jesus has talked about the Holy Spirit a lot. This is the fifth and final time that he addresses it. But to frame it simply, think about it like this. In the season that, that they're in right then, they absolutely need the ministry of Jesus. And so do you and so do I. In that present season, they absolutely need the ministry of Jesus. But in the coming season, 
they will absolutely need the ministry of the Spirit. So do you, so do I. Even if they don't understand it. It turns out, not very much, uh, not unlike children, sometimes we need things that we can't understand. I wish it weren't so uh, a lot of times, but there are things that are actually good for us, that are true, they're real, they're right, uh, they can even be pleasing, but we can't get our minds quite there. There are things like that in, in the world uh, that exist. Okay, so that's the simple frame on it. Jesus is saying, listen, I've got this ministry and I'm going to accomplish those things, but I'm going to leave, the Spirit's going to come, it's to your advantage. Because when the Spirit comes, He's going to have this twofold ministry. Uh, that when the Spirit comes, look at how you can see this just framed in the passage. Look at verse 8. When he comes, he's going to do this. Then pop down to verse 13. When the Spirit comes, he's going to do that. He's going to do this, he's going to do that. And that's what we're going to talk about. But he's got this work that he's going to do in the world. So you just, just think about part of what Jesus is doing here is he's given the rationale like, listen, when the Spirit comes, he's going to operate in a way that whenever it happens, you're going to know what to expect. You're going to be able to identify that. Um, so just say a job description, something like that. I'm a shepherd is one of the words for, you know, pastor, elder, shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Well, you should know, right? Like a, well, I should know for sure. But it, so a shepherd is going to take care of the flock. And you might go, you, there are different ways that you could say this, but you could say internally, the shepherd tends the flock. And externally, the shepherd protects the flock. Right? So you think about it that way, just divide it simply. And Jesus is doing that, and he's doing that in these sort of two different buckets or two different categories. What is his twofold ministry? Well, the first one is in verses 8 through 11, the Holy Spirit will convict the world. The beginning of verse 8 says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. What does that mean? There are a lot of different ways that you could translate it. It can mean to expose uh, to convict, to convince, sort of like uh, press, prosecutor, prophet, uh, evangelist, all molded into one. Because here's the overall sense of it. It's often to show someone his sin so that he can repent, or in the absence of that, to shed light on his evil to expose it for what it is. In other words, it puts the, the, the responsibility for the truth, the reality of it, on the person who is in darkness. Or on that whole community who happened to be in darkness. So what is it that the world or that the Spirit convicts the world of? It says in verse 8 at the end of it, three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he gives a reason for each. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And there's some, if you read scholars, uh, there's some debate about the particulars. And I don't necessarily recommend that you read a lot of scholars on some of these things. Uh, they could, a lot of times these guys are talking to each other, and God's Word is really to talk to us. And so there are times that the most basic sense, kind of the sense, and that's the case here, I believe. All right, so let's talk about what it means. Here's what the Spirit's going to do in the world. His ministry in the world is to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin in verse 9, and he says it this way. Because they do not believe in me. 
because they do not believe in me. What's the connection between the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin and them not believing in Jesus? How does that work together? Well, Jesus is the only one who can take away the sins of the world. He's the only one who can do it. And so they're exposed concerning their sin because they've rejected the only one who can address it for them. You don't believe in Jesus, you're still in your sin before God. What are you going to do about that? The Holy Spirit's going to bring that to light. Concerning righteousness, verse 10. Uh, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now what does that mean? How does that show the righteousness of God that Jesus goes to the Father and He's no longer uh, you know, in the world? Well, listen, they condemned Jesus and crucified Him as quote-unquote guilty on those trumped-up charges. His resurrection and ascension, though, is an answer to that. It's a vindication of who He is by God the Father of His righteousness and what true righteousness is. So if you're weighing it out this way, all right, you got Jesus and you got the world. Who's right? Who is it? How do you decide? Exhibit A. I don't know. Maybe we should go with the guy who rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. That might be a pretty good offer of proof that heaven affirms him, approves of who he is and what he's done, right? So who stands for truth and righteousness? So the Holy Spirit does that. And then finally in verse 11, concerning judgment. And, and Jesus says, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler, your leader, is judged. Now, turns out what he means here is that uh, when, when your ruler is judged, you think of your ruler as the one who judges. And what he's saying here is he's actually the judgee. Right? He, he loses. If, if you're of the world and your leader is judged, if he's toast, you know what's up. You know the ultimate authority is God's and you're poised for judgment. Uh, if you don't repent, the world is not ultimate, God's kingdom is. So that's one, the Holy Spirit has a ministry, a work in the world to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. To expose it for what it is, there's an opportunity to repent, but to, to seal it righteously in judgment if it doesn't. Second, he will guide his disciples, verses 13 through 15. Now, Jesus has already said that what he does is what the Father does. His ministry, he would say, is a reflection of the Father's work and expressing his will in the world. So, you know, a lot of times people will talk about what it means that Jesus is the Word of God. He is the self-expression of God. He is God's message to the world. He is the articulation, the embodiment of, of who God is and how he operates in the world. And now what Jesus does is he puts the Holy Spirit in that line. How does the Holy Spirit guide the disciples? Uh, that, that, you, can, you can read the whole passage, but you can see it. All of these, I'm going to give you three things, but they're all really the same concept that overlap and they lay over each other. Uh, one of the ways that he guides the disciples is by illuminating the truth. Look at the beginning of verse 13. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So he's all about the truth. That's the way he operates. And then he says, and he'll guide you into all the truth. That's what he's going to do. Now, why is that? Is that an abstraction? Mm. Jesus in chapter 14 said, I am the truth. As a matter of fact, in John's prologue, right? Uh, Moses gave us the law, but grace and truth we see in the Son of God. 
uh, he's the truth. So by illuminating the truth, it's, this truth is all about Jesus. And another way of saying it is by unfolding Jesus' ministry. They don't get it. The disciples are there. They see it. They're all first-handers, but they, they can't make sense of all the little details. They don't know where it's going. But he says at the end of verse 13 that the Holy Spirit's not going to speak on his own authority and do his own thing. He's actually going to take what's given to him and relay that. The Father has given it to Jesus. Jesus has given it to the Spirit. Verses 14 and 15. He'll take the things of Jesus and declare it to the disciples, even, at the end of verse 13, the things that are to come. Now think about their context. What are the things that are to come? What is Jesus about to do? What's ahead is crucifixion. What's ahead is resurrection. The disciples are in an absolute fog as to what all that's about. And the Spirit will turn on the light for them. He'll break through the fog. And then finally, another way of saying, again, the same thing is by glorifying Jesus. It says at the beginning of verse 14, He will glorify me. Now, the disciples are going to be tempted to think Jesus failed. Dying is failure. He would have lost. That's going to be the temptation. Not so. This is his glory. As a matter of fact, once Judas leaves the room, he says, okay, that's the trigger. That's the timing. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Right now, we're going to do it. And he's talking about going into his cross. So what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to highlight and celebrate the perfections and the work of Jesus. That's what you're going to see him do. All right, so here the Holy Spirit has this ministry among the disciples of Jesus and in the world, and a huge advantage to them, Jesus says. Now, that's all the way back in the first century. And as we wrap up this morning, what I want to do, there's more that we could do, but what I want to do is I want to offer three truths from the passage. What do you draw out of it? Let me give you three. There's more, but let me give you these three. Number one, truth is not easy. Truth is not easy. Just look at our public discourse. We just really wrestle with even the simple meanings of words sometimes, or what a, a, a basic framework of right and wrong is an awful, awful lot. But truth is not easy mainly because it's opposed. In fact, the world is so dark that we require supernatural assistance. Look at the beginning of verse 13 again. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Uh, no help, no truth. Uh, that's, that's how disassociated we are from ultimate reality, that unless God helps us, the light won't come on. Truth, not easy. And again, if you go, well, are there things that would cor- corroborate that? Oh, absolutely, just... One, you can turn on the news, but you don't even have to go that far, right? You can just, you can see it all over the place. Truth isn't easy. Number two, repentance is essential. Repentance is essential. Uh, There's no way to God without it, mainly because you're heading the opposite direction. To to repent means to, to turn. To repent means while I'm going this way and I'm so sure that I know what I'm doing and I've got it all figured out and I'm all about the right thing and all of that stuff, to repent is to go, nope, I was wrong. What I was pursuing, what I was relying on, a lot myself, I'm going to have to abandon that. All of that is empty. I'm going to have to turn. That's the only way that you're going to go through Jesus is if you repent. 
You know, the world rejects Jesus not so much because it's unconvinced by Jesus, but because it defies God from the heart. It's more than an error in calculation, right? There's bias. There's bias, you know. Uh, you see this sometimes in, uh, uh, you know, cheering for your team in sports. You're always like, who got fouled? Well, it depends on who you're cheering for, right? You know, that, that's not a foul. Well, you're probably cheering for the, you know, the person who's getting called a foul on and that sort of thing. There's a lot of bias that goes into it, but that's the way it is with God. Uh, it's, it's more deep than inconvenience, God's truth. It's a loyalty to evil is what we find we're, we're dealing with, and that has to be rejected. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world so that you can see, so that you could repent, so that you could believe in Jesus. Repentance is essential because you can't stay where you are, not be okay. And then finally, let's talk about the Spirit's work. Evidence of the Spirit in your life is seen in clarity about, faith in, loyalty to, and celebration of Jesus. Let me say it again. Evidence of the Spirit in your life is seen in clarity about, faith in, loyalty to, and celebration of Jesus. What does the Spirit do? He's going to glorify me, he says. He's going to guide you into the truth about me. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, once said this about the Holy Spirit. He's, he referred to the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity. What the Holy Spirit is not doing is going like, well, you know, I mean, you got the Father, and everybody's talking about the Father, and then Jesus, and you know, He died on the cross, but what about me? And that, it's sort of funny because uh, there is unity in, uh, in relationship in the Godhead, but you get a group of people together, and they've got different roles, and somebody in number three is going to go, but what about me? And you know what the Holy Spirit does? It's always pointing to Jesus. And so, if you think the Spirit is leading you, but it's not to the glory of Jesus, it may not be the Holy Spirit leading you. Because He's all about highlighting the glory of Jesus and the difference He is. And He is the difference. Do you see who Jesus is? Because that's what the Holy Spirit is, is working on, moving in. Speaking of who Jesus is, um, I grew up with this. It's one of my favorite things. I don't, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to totally understand it. But when he was talking to his disciples, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not because God is so narrow, but because salvation is so hard. It's not easy. You don't, it's, you don't just get to choose a way. You actually need something that works. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. One of those is truth. I'm, I'm the one who can bring you into God's family, into God's kingdom. You're on the outside. How do I get in? Well, you need to know somebody. You need to know the one, and Jesus is the one who can bring you in. And the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has done that. And, and what, the, what the Bible says is that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever puts his trust in Jesus, will have eternal life. Be forgiven. You'll share in the life and the glory of Jesus. That's God's message. He's Lord, He's Savior, and He's offering grace. Will you receive the grace? That all comes through Jesus and only Jesus and only as a gift, only by grace. And so here's the question as you reflect on it, because this would be in line with the Spirit's work anyway. 
if everyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life, ask yourself this, have I believed? So that's all the difference. Let's pray. God, thank you for the way. Thank you that, uh, that Jesus came. He was sent by you to identify with us, and he's the way, the truth, and the life. And none of us has access to you, can approach you without him. Because, and, and his work is so effective because he addressed our sin. When there's this great exchange in grace, that when you see us when we believed in Jesus, that you just see his righteousness because he bore our sin. What a great and gracious God you are, but we also celebrate and thank you for the work of the Spirit to point that out, to turn on the light, and we just ask that the Spirit would work this morning, work in our hearts and work in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.